Psalm 73. Welcome back, by the way, and thank you for taking us on your vacation. I have thoroughly enjoyed the travelogue. It's been fantastic, so I appreciate that. Psalm 73. Now, we have these little study guides out and I want to follow this a little bit today for you, but we have these little study guides out that uh, have four double questions. When I say four double questions, I like to do Bible studies with four little co- four colors to highlight my Bible with. I like to highlight in yellow any problems that we have to endure or blessings to embrace. That's question number one. I like to highlight in my Bible orange for is there any sin for me to avoid or attitude to change number three i like to highlight in my bible in blue is there any truth for me to believe or promise to claim and number four i like to highlight in my bible in green is there any commandment for me to follow or example command to obey or example to follow and I, wanna, I want to do that in Psalm 73 here today. Let's begin looking at it at verse 1. <clears throat> but there's a title that says that this psalm was written by Asaph. And all you need to know about Asaph is that he was a leader of one of the temple choirs. A choir director, so to speak. And so he is the one who is overwhelmed with all that he is sharing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit today. And he begins in verse 1 by saying, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Now there's a verse to sit on. And if you're highlighting your Bible, you would highlight that in blue, right? Because it's a truth for you and I to believe. Truly God is good to Israel. And almost like a second thought, he says, I need to qualify that a little bit. God is good to Israel, to such in Israel as are pure in heart. And you know we have a Jesus connection to this passage of Scripture, because in the New Testament, in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, the Bible tells us that Jesus, in giving to us the Beatitudes, says that blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Now this is a passage to sit on. This is not only a truth to believe, but it's kind of like a promise to claim. Truly God is good to Israel. He didn't just say God is good to Israel, to such are pure in heart, but truly that is true. I know that to be true. It has been Proven time and time and time again. Verse 2. But as for me, Asaph says, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. So here's Asaph saying, but I don't quite see it that way. Here's the temptation in front of me, and that is to trade places with the boastful. He's looking at them, and he says, I almost lost my footing. I almost slipped over the cliff. 
Uh, I, we didn't get, we got a real good uh, idea of that in one of your photos. You know, I thought when I was out west that uh, when we went to uh, uh, these canyons up in the northern part of uh, the United States, that it was kind of like the Roadrunner cartoon, you know, these roads that go around these canyons, but they're really that way. But the seeing the, the, the picture that you had of canyon lands is just absolutely fine. I mean, I was just, it was just a little scary just looking at the picture and saying, do they really, really drive on those roads? But that's exactly what this passage of Scripture is saying. Now, you would have to go to verse 18 to get the rest of this because when he compares the fact that his feet almost stumbled in his step and he almost slipped over the cliff, in verse 18, he's talking about the wicked, and he says, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. They're the ones who really slip off the cliff. He said, But I almost did. I almost did. And the reason why I almost did that is because I was envious of the boastful. So now he comes to the problem. And you have to understand, he's looking at this problem through his eyes that are just not quite clear yet. And so the problem I like to highlight in my Bible in yellow. And he describes the problem here. He says, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, this is what happened to me. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men. If I were to just summarize all of that information, I would summarize it this way in another good translation of Scripture, a good paraphrase anyway. They live painless lives. They're not plagued with problems like I am. They wear their pride like they're wearing a necklace. They're clothed in clothes of cruelty. They have everything that they've ever wanted. And not only that, but he says to them that they have two very, very rebellious questions. In verse 11 it says, and they say, how does God know? Does God even see anything? And number two, does he really know what's happening? And so he says in verse 12, look at them. Look at them. They're enjoying life and they're enjoying it with ease. And they're doing all of this while their riches are multiplying. Reminds me of the deacons who went to visit a, a person in the community. <clears throat> and the pastor and the deacon were, well, the pastor and the deacon were driving up to this guy's house. And as they drove up to the house, they saw orchards. They saw saw everything that you could possibly imagine. When they got close to the house, they saw a big boat. They saw uh, uh, tennis courts. They saw, this guy had everything on his place. And the deacon looked at the pastor and said, and, and, and we're here to share good news? And we're here to share good news? Well, that's the way the human mind thinks, you see. He, and now, I... I I, you know, certainly, certainly we need to qualify the fact that everything works well for the, uh, for the wicked. But he, he's really pressing a point here that many times in our lives we look at those who are doing well 
And here we are serving the Lord, and in serving the Lord, we have problems that they don't have. Difficulties that they don't have to deal with. Challenges that never, never, never enter their minds. And so he is concerned about trading places. So in verse 13, notice what he does. It goes from bad to worse. When he describes his thinking, he says in verse 13, and this certainly is a sin to avoid or an attitude to change. And in your Bible, you would highlight verse 13 in orange if you follow my particular way of doing that. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and I've washed my hands in innocence. What on earth am I concerned about being pure in heart for? What is it really getting me? Now, he knows he's wrong in all of that. But just hearing him say that really, really um, bothers us, I'm sure. But on the other hand, you can say, you know, I have probably thought that from time to time as well. Why do I even bother to be pure in heart? Why do I even bother to do what's good? Why do I even bother to do what God wants me to do when it gets me into all kinds of trouble? It kind of, uh, it kind of reminds me of how the Apostle Paul, when he's dealing with rev- the, the um, resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the Apostle Paul, in dealing with the resurrection of Christ... He talks about the fact that if Christ was not raised from the dead, then what are we all doing here? Paul, he's very candid about that. What are we doing here? If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, our faith is in vain, and we might as well not even be wasting our time. That's what Paul says. But we're not wasting our time because Christ did rise from the dead. But he says, I've cleansed my heart in vain. It's not worth it. I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been plagued and chastened every morning. And I look at these guys out there who have everything they want. And they can get anything they want. And they can live the way they want. Any old time they want. Do what they want. But I don't have that privilege. In verse 15, like I said, he knows he's wrong. And in verse 15, he says, If I had said, I will speak thus. In other words, if I would have just taken this mindset of mine and just broadcasted it everywhere and just complained all over the place, he said, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children, Lord. Notice he's addressing the Lord here at this point. I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. He says, but I'll tell you what, when I think about all of these problems here, he says, it's painful. It's painful. And I can't get over it. I can't get around it. I can't, I can't see my way through it. 
He says, it's too difficult for me to try to reconcile what is happening in the world of the ungodly and the wicked and what is happening to me as a righteous person who has tried to maintain a pure heart. So in verse 17, we have one word that begins in verse 17. Until. Verse 17 is uh, green in my Bible. I've highlighted this whole chapter. And in highlighting the green, I know now that there is either a command for me to obey or an example to follow. And now I have an example. If I find myself in the situation that Asaph finds himself, Asaph is going to give to me some reason why I should reconsider. Because he says to us, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood therein. It was not until I sat under the Lord's feet. It was not until I worshipped at the Lord's sanctuary. It's not until I rubbed shoulders with my fellow believers. It's not until, it, it wasn't until I spent this time with God that I understood their end. I understood the final destiny of the wicked. And to him that made all the difference in the world. I understood their final end. And he says, this is what the Lord taught me. Verses 18 through 20, this is what the Lord taught me. No doubt, that's what he's saying here. In 18, he's saying, surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to the destruction. They're the ones who slip off the path over the cliff and down into the canyon. That's the illustration that he uses. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. The terrors that they have to deal with in their lives, consume them. And they're living in a dream, and they don't realize it. They are living in a dream, and they don't realize it. And one of these days, they're going to wake up from that dream. And I love the play on words here, because it says, as a dream, when one awakes, so the Lord, when you awake, you'll despise their image. The day is going to come when they wake out of their dreams and they're going to see the reality of what living their lives in such wickedness results in. Now in verse 21 and 22, he goes back to his attitude. And he just is being very candid about it. And he said, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. When I realized what my attitude was, when I realized what I was doing, he said, I was grieved and vexed about that, and I was so foolish and ignorant that I was like a beast before you. I was kind of like a grum, a bear. All I need to do is say that, and you all know what we usually say about a bear. I was some senseless animal out there. I couldn't believe that I was taking this position. I couldn't believe that I had fallen into this temptation. I couldn't believe that I wanted to trade places. I couldn't believe that I was thinking the way the wicked think. I couldn't believe, Lord, that I was willing to give up 
purity of heart to have what the wicked have. I couldn't believe that I was putting such little value on what you put great value on. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. You'll remember in 2 Peter chapter 2, you remember in 2 Peter chapter 2, the Bible talks about Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says that Lot was a righteous man living in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he was grieved every day. He was vexed every day. A lot of people take, like to take the life of Lot and say, well, you know, I don't know what, he lived down there. He must have enjoyed it. He must have liked it a lot. But what does 2 Peter say? 2 Peter says that Lot was grieved. He was oppressed. He was vexed is the old word for it, every single day when he got up and he, got, he saw what, what the wicked were doing. And this is kind of what's happening here with the psalmist, you see. He's finally coming to his senses. He's kind, finally looking at things the way God wants him to see things. Life without Christ is a dead-end street. Life without the Lord no sense or desire in our hearts to, to be pure and to honor the Lord and to love the Lord. It's a dead-end street. But it's not a dead-end street for those who want to love the Lord and honor the Lord in everything. It's not a dead-end street. For what does he say in verses 23 and 24? He says, nevertheless, I am constantly or continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. It kind of reminds me of the father and the, and the boy who were walking this uh, treacherous trail. And, and the boy said, I want to hold on to your hand. And so he held on to his dad's hand. And, and every once in a while, he would slip. He wouldn't, he wouldn't, he, he, his hand would not be able to hold on to his dad's hand. And to finally, the dad says, how about if I hold on to yours? Whose grip is the better grip? Well, what he's saying here is, Lord, you know what? I, I have a hard time holding on to your hand, but listen, I am continuing with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel. And that's the attitude that we should have, you see, in this particular situation. That God has the better grip. You see, when he says that you hold me with my right hand, your right hand and you will guide me with your counsel... Notice what he says, and afterward, I don't, I, don't end, I don't end up in a dead-end street with all of this. What, he says, what does he say happens at the end of the road for the believer? Afterward, you will receive me to what? Glory. Great Old Testament passage of Scripture that most people say, it looks like it should be in the New Testament. And then he, he says, whom have I in heaven but you? Sit on that a while. And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. Sit on that a while. These are passages of Scripture to sit on. These are promises and these are truths to believe. My flesh and my heart may fail. Notice what he says. He says, my health may fail. My heart may lose its confidence. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, where would you rather be? I think he has successfully dealt with the temptation that he raises early on in this passage of Scripture, don't you? 
I was tempted to come up with all kinds of applications of this, and I thought, no, let me apply it exactly the way he applies it in this passage of Scripture. We don't need to add anything more to it. The fact of the matter is that he understands in verse 25 and 26 that there's no, nothing more important than our relationship with the Lord. There is none on earth that I desire beyond you, Lord. My flesh and my heart will fail, but you are the strength of my heart and the portion my portion forever. Forever. Well, we have one verse left. And I would highlight it in green. Because now we have another command to follow or a example. A command to obey or example to follow. And it's a great example for us. But... It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. Three things there. Number one, we need to draw near to God. That's opposite of what the wicked do. You know, back there in verse 10, the Bible says that they say, in verse 11, they say, how does God know and is there any knowledge in the Most High? The wicked want to hide themselves as far away from God as they possibly can. And if they know that God is there, they want to try to prove to themselves and suppress that truth and say, you know what, I don't believe there is a God or I don't believe He has any power. I don't believe He sees everything. I don't believe He's there to guide and direct us. We're on our own. That's how the wicked look at things. But Asaph, the choir director in the temple, one of the choir directors in the temple says, listen, it's good for me to draw near to God. And I want you to know that I put my trust in the Lord. And the reason why I've done that is so that I don't have to broadcast my faulty thinking, which would be untrue to the generation, which would betray and be, I would be a traitor to the generation of your children if I did that. I instead want to declare all of your works. I don't know whether you realize it, but one of the reasons we come into the sanctuary on Sunday morning is so that we can declare the works of the Lord and we don't have to, we don't have, to have our heads filled with all of the negative stuff that we see and hear in the world around us when we leave. That's one of the reasons why we come. But we can let God, He already knows our hearts. He already knows whether we're thankful, whether we're appreciative, whether we're grateful. He knows all of that. But you see, it's important for us to declare all of His works. It's important for us to declare that we thirst after Him. It's important that we understand, and we didn't sing this song, but it's important that we understand how God, by His Holy Spirit, leads us and guides us and directs us through a maze of problems. So take this psalm home with you and uh, be prepared to apply it the next time your thinking begins to get a little faulty. I really enjoyed preaching on Psalm 37 a couple, uh, couple of weeks ago or so because Psalm 37 is the 
psalm that is most similar to this particular one where the psalmist says, I've been fretting myself because of evildoers, and I've been envious of the workers of iniquity. Here is the other psalm in the Bible that comes the closest to dealing with that mental problem. Psalm 37, just turn Psalm 37 around and you have 73. Easy to remember. All right, let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for the illustrations that you give to us in your word to help us through our trying times, to help us through our temptations, to help us when we take a look at what's going on around us and we become a little envious of what we see. Remind us that we're not home yet. Remind us that the best is yet to come. Remind us that we're not on no dead-end street. We pray in your precious name that we may take encouragement and strength, be strengthened from what Asaph says. In Jesus, your most precious name we pray. Amen.